0: Yeah, I guess a little bit of perspective is helpful. So you guys, what's our, what's our course? Yeah, greatest commandment, love God, love neighbor, right? Um, pretty good stuff. You guys like my water bottle, by the way? Isn't that pretty great? It's purple and it has Mary on it. It's, it's actually my wife's, but I've been, I left mine somewhere. That's what we got. Um, so yeah, grab your notes if you want them, but we're going to kind of... Uh, We're gonna go pretty quick and just some recap. I think it's kind of helpful at this point. So kind of at a pivotal point in the semester, Um, like we have today, right, and then we have formation, like I think it's first week in November, and then actually we have formation retreat is the next time we'll be all together. So we have small group the week after that formation, and then there's like the week of formation retreat, and we don't have anything that Thursday. We'll have formation retreat together, which is gonna be awesome. It's actually guys, girls separate, so we're not all together, but it's gonna be sweet. Women are at Damascus, guys are at Geneva Hills. And then, and then we have one more after that. So there's really only two more times we're together. And I want to kind of like plant us where we're at and kind of give us some vision going forward. So greatest commandment, love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, your neighbor as yourself. So in our first talk together, we talked about um, how like, the big problem, right? The big problem with us and knowing and loving God is that we kind of mishear what he's saying to us, right? We talked about like we're not actually picking up what he's throwing down which causes us to play the wrong game right so our minds need renewal we need to like understand new wine and new wine skins so, so we can go in a couple different directions we talked about like how we can think that the point of life is for me to perform right be to do good be perfect do all the things right so that my life will matter and that God will notice me more right kind of like you do with your parents when you're a kid. Like, If I'm good, then I'll be noticed, I'll be loved more. Or we think that, okay, I'm gonna follow God and like, you know, pray and go to church and do all those things so that God will like help me out, right? So I'll do all the good things so he'll like me more or help me more. Um, that's like the moralistic therapeutic deism, the MTD that John abbreviated so well for us. Um, and the whole kind of idea is there that ultimately I'll do the thing so God can give me what I want and it'll all work out for me. Uh, brothers and sisters, that is not the gospel. Both of those fall drastically short. Uh, they're uh, they're not even that, that good of news. I would say it's kind of like, hey, your life can go a little bit better if God's involved. It's like it's like okay news, you know? It's like, all right, yeah, I guess, cool. I think my life would be okay kind of without him, maybe too. It's it's just like so God. It's my life with like God sprinkled on top, not the good news, not the gospel. Um, so the gospel is actually this invitation to lay down our lives, right? To come follow Jesus right with all of our lives um but we can kind of, you know the whole idea of like he who like seeks to save his life will lose it if you lose your life for my sake you'll find it right jesus talked about like unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies or it remains just a grain of wheat but if it does fall to the ground and dies it bears much fruit right these whole ideas but here's here's the problem the problem with that that invitation to follow jesus and lay down our lives is it's really hard it's not like just like flip the switch we're there it's difficult right um, how, who can get over this hurdle, and the disciples say this in the, the rich young man right and we enter the rich, we talked about the rich young man how Jesus kind of asked him to lay down control of his life to like follow him, and he walked away what sad. he walked away sad um, why? we propose that because he missed the main character of the story, he missed what it was all about he didn 't actually know who he was talking to and who the father was so it 's like if you missed the main character of the story it 's kind of important it 's like if, you know, imagine you're like, you know, some kind of animal creature inside Lion King. If you're in that story and there's no Simba, that story makes zero sense, right? It's like, it's pretty garbage. It's like, what the hell are we doing here, right? This story makes no sense. Uh, if you, you know, if you've seen The Matrix, it's like The Matrix without Neo. It's like, what are we doing here? You're just getting beat up by a bunch of futuristic robots. Um, so the, uh, the earth-shattering revelation of the gospel, what, what actually Jesus was inviting him into, was the truth that there is a, we have a father, right? And his father loves us beyond our understanding, that he is all good, all loving, and all powerful, and that his entire being is directed to our flourishing. That's what was in front of this man. Said another way, we have a father who has our backs no matter what, right? He cares for us beyond what we could ever imagine. Even in the darkest and the suffering times of our life, the father is there to bring about resurrection and for us to be with him forever. This total trust. Right, And so this Christian life we talked about is first about acknowledging and surrendering to the main character, the Father himself, who loves us and has our, has our best interests in mind. This gets us in the right story. That's first. And then John kind of introduced us to the idea that we live in a story, which is a really important concept. we talk about myth. Do you guys remember all that? I don't know. It's really helpful to listen to John's talk a couple times. I've listened to it probably like four or five times. The podcast is really helpful. Um, you can put it on 1.5 speed. That's really helpful, too. Um, I only did that once, John. Your voice is very soothing. Uh, but the, the whole idea is we want to return to the world of myth, right? And he says something that was great. We, our, our lives is for us like a search for the greatest story possible, to insert ourselves into the greatest possible meaning, to the greatest possible story. And the main character is who? God, God not us, right? The main character of the story is God. And If you're, if you're in a story, you're confused the main character, is like I said, Lion King, you're just kind of off. You're going you're to miss the game. So he went through the whole salvation history, Um, you know, God created, we're with him in the garden, we torpedo the whole project, and like how we actually participate in that kind of rebellion against God. Like Adam and Eve, yes, like that that story actually gets played out now, where we choose little things as opposed to God's fulfillment. We choose these little like comforts or whatever we want besides God himself, and so we are fragmented, right? Um, And he plays it out in the Old Testament really well, and the whole idea is us, or really, humanity trying to put the pieces back together. Like, we started with God, total union, we severed that union, and the rest of Old Testament, even salvation history, is us trying to like make our way back to put the pieces back together to the, of that separation. Um, so, we do that to, the, to this day. We grasp, we control, we strive to create the perfect life that perhaps will be enough to satisfy us. We're like, I think I know what, how this has to go, and we just kind of like make it happen ourselves and kind of leave God to the side. Um, but these efforts fall short, amen. They fall short. Um, no amount of our efforts can actually satisfy. So this, I love how we kind of dug into this this pain inside of us. This like, if we're aware of it. If we let it come to the surface, this like pain, that wrenching pain of like, I am not what I could be. I am not who I'm called to be, right? And that kind of like drives us. It can be different levels of understanding or awareness, even anxiety in our life. But Paul even talks about this. Paul says wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's like, I want to follow God, I want to do the things, but it doesn't work out that way. Um, John does a good job of capturing angst. So, in that story, in this spot, where we're trying to get there, we're trying to make, we're trying to become who, like, we can kind of sense or vaguely aware of who we are called to be, who we actually might be able to be, enter Jesus, right, into our story, into this hopelessness, into this cycle of failure, enters Jesus. And Jesus changes everything. He doesn't change some things. Jesus changes everything. So, um, there's a funny story. So, Ellie, this is probably a couple years ago. I think I told this one time at, at SPO training if you were there. But, Ellie, we, we got a new minivan, like, during COVID, okay? Um, and has, like, automatic doors. It also has, like, the wind, sh- like, the, the sunscreens, you know, you, like, put up on, like, the back doors so the kids, you know, are not blinded by the sun. Um, and one time... She like, was playing with that, and was like, Ellie, don't play with it, cause she's gonna break it, and so she kinda like, let it go, and it kinda was like floppy, and then she like, sh- like, opened the door, and it kinda like, crunched, and like, ripped a little on the bottom, and she just like, lost it. She was like, no, it's broken! And she was so sad, and she was inconsolable, and she was like, we need a new car! <laughs> because the sunscreen had a little rip on it. But I think what she got at was good, it's like, what she wants is a full restoration. So, in our lives, with God, right, we want new hearts, not just like tidier hearts, not just hearts that are like stitched together, like patched together, we want new hearts, and that's actually what the Lord promises us, he says a new, this is Ezekiel prophesied even before Jesus, but he's talking about Jesus, he says, a new heart I will give to you, a new spirit I will put within you, I will take out of you your heart of flesh and give you a heart of stone, no, I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, that's what he says, Not, not what the first thing I said, um, we also hear about all creation, us, including all of creation. We wait with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God, right? New hearts, not just tidier ones. So that's a little bit of teaser, and we're going to kind of dive into it really circling some of the stuff John was talking about. Um, and I want to kind of start with our question, our big question, our original question. We're talking about the greatest commandment, love God, love neighbor. How do we love God? This is the pivotal question how do we love god and john did a great job of talking about do we do this through our like striving or through our surrendering right and he did an excellent job of bringing us through baptism bringing us to the sacraments bringing us to ultimately to the eucharist right and how we participate in that and then the encounter of god actually encapsulates this surrender and this action that unites us to the body and also to jesus himself john did a great job um, and even weaving that through the storyline he's way more poetic than me but I'm, I'm actually going to sit us on the same question. And everything I'm going to talk about is kind of like a yes and to John because we could sit here and talk about this forever because this is the fundamental question of our existence. How do we love God, right? Because we know that in God is our flourishing, is all that is life, is in God. So how do we love God? All right, so let's explore it together. So let's assume, right, is it, do we love God through our action, through our activity, through our striving, or through our surrendering? Well, let's assume at first that possibly, maybe, there's something about us striving. This is our go-to mode. That's why we're starting here. We've got to be honest with ourselves. Our go-to mode with God is like, I'm going to do things. I'm going to prove it. I'm going to stack them all on top of each other. Hey, you guys, do more things because God loves you, right? That's kind of like our, our like, we don't maybe say that to ourselves, but that's kind of how we operate. It's kind of how we think. So let's assume God, we love God through primarily first through action. So that means we should set up a plan, right? A good College students, very responsible people. We're going to set up a plan, all right? So our goal, to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. All right, that's our goal. We've got seven steps. Step one, pray every day. You know, make time for prayer every day. Okay, good. Step two, mass. Multiple times a week if possible. Step three, adoration as able, right? Step four, confession. Monthly, ideally, but maybe more frequently. Step five, love your neighbor as yourself in all circumstances, at all times. Step six, do the right thing at the right time in the right manner, always. Step seven, if that fails, go to confession and try again. This time, try harder. All right? And we laugh, and it is kind of funny, um, but that's actually kind of how we think the game needs to be played, in a way. We're like, okay, I need to love God. Therefore, I need to get my stuff together. I need to, like, get these things happening. I need to, like, do them all and make sure they happen. Again, if, if I'm not perfect, I go to confession. And I try harder next time, because, like, eventually, it'll all work out. They'll all click, and I'll, I'll be doing them. I'll do all seven steps, um, this is, I call this the Ohio way. Try harder, work better, be more efficient, smarter and harder. Um, but the problem with this is sin always wins. On this side of reality, or this side of the curtain, right? Sin always wins with this strategy. We don't have what it takes. Our flesh is too weak, right? Jesus even says it, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's not just talking about one circumstance. He's talking about the human condition, brothers and sisters. The spirit is willing. There's a part of that's like, yes, I want to do it for you, God, but the flesh is weak. So what do I mean that we can't do it? Um, let's play it out. Okay. What if you wanted to do step one? Let's just, let's just explore step one. Step one is what? It's pray every day. Okay? So we're going we're to focus on that. Well, okay, here's the plan. You sit down and you pray, right? Okay, duh. We're doing it. So, But then you start thinking about yourself. You're like, ah, oh, my day. Then maybe you start thinking about, like, a test, or the thing, or the distraction, or that person, or whatever it is, and you're just kind of, like, off in your own head, you know? And then it's pretty soon that prayer time is just kind of you thinking about who? You. Yourself, Yourself, right? Who's been there before? Yeah, yeah, myself included, right? So um, it's like, it's kind of like us having a conversation and dominating it. It's kind of what that looks like sometimes. It's not that God doesn't want to process with this, but how often is our prayer just about us? It's like sitting down. So imagine someone you really respect, or look up like John Paul II, or think of some saint or someone that you get to meet. It's like a really big freaking deal, okay? This person's like in front of you. And us in that taking our prayer time, it's like us just like dominating the conversation with that person. And just like telling them about stuff going on in our lives, and like the test we had and the person we met, and like all these things in our house or whatever it is. That'd be kind of ridiculous, right? It's like, this person probably has some cool things to say. Maybe you should just ask some questions and shut up and listen, right? Like, that's probably the more appropriate thing to do when you're sitting in front, across from someone who is so wise and so great. Um, so here's the thing. Like, what we... What, um, so what we want to accomplish is step number one in praying, that we see that um, even that we kind of fail at, right? For, great, right, Paul says, for I do not... Right, do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate right like I want to sit down and have a good prayer time but I just end up being like in my own head God this is not working Paul even says we do for we do not know how to pray as we ought we literally can't pray Paul's not saying like it's really hard sometimes he's saying like we actually don't know how to pray as we ought like so like your step number one is already like blown up right you see you guys track with me here like it doesn't really work when you just try to like white knuckle it and make it happen sin dwells in our bodies so if we want to play the game according to our efforts and our behavior aka our rules we lose we fail it's like old testament style right everyone trying to like john went through like he went through noah abraham um, david or moses david solomon elijah all these people they tried and they fell short until jesus so in, in this case study our action is synonymous our kind of plan here is synonymous with control us trying to be like, all right, I'm going to build my way to God. My seven steps, there's like the seven layers of like the Tower of Babel that I will ascend. And when I get to the top and I do them all perfectly, then I will be Mr. Good Christian Boy, man, and I'll be a saint. And that's how it's done. So let's get to work, you know. Um, and we have to conclude, brothers and sisters, we have to conclude that we cannot love God if we're just going by our action plan. If we're setting up seven steps to love God, it's actually not how it's done. Said another way, we cannot love God when we are in control of the process. I'll say it again, we cannot love God when we're in control of the process. Because we find ourselves, oftentimes when we do that, we find ourselves at war with reality. So here's, think of it this way. You want to show your roommate that you love them, that you care for them, right? So here's what you do. You write down some things that you decided you will start doing every day to show your roommate that you love them and care for them. this involves, you wake them up every morning by playing their favorite song. You know, pretty good. You will make their bed for them. You help them make their breakfast in the morning after morning prayer. You pack their lunch. You include them in everything you do. You tell them constantly how great they are. You're very verbally affirming. What would your roommate probably do? Like, yeah, yeah, move out, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hopefully the conversation first but probably ultimately be like, hey, chill out, please. Like, like what, are you, what are you doing? It's like, I'm loving you. It's like, are you? Because it's a lot. Like, I didn't ask you to do this. Like, you thought you had to do this? Like, what are you doing? Right? Um, it's kind of a ridiculous example, but you the point. is, like, sometimes we do that with God, where we're like, packing all these things. Like, God, I'm going to do everything for you. And God's kind of like, hey, what are, you, what are you what are you, doing? Seems kind of like, did you ask me? Like, do you know how this works? Like, do you want to like, talk about how to do this well? Did we just kind of like say, I know how to do it well. Seven steps. That's it, God. Um... So it begs the question, too, in this example, um, I think you'd be kind of, why would that not be received well? I think because you're controlling the relationship. Like you're kind of enforcing your will and you're like, your desire on that relationship. Like this is what needs to happen, this is what's gonna happen, damn it. Um, you're dominating. It's your plan and that you're executing on. So it begs the question, why do you even feel like you have to love your roommate in the first place? Like where is that coming from, right? Where is that desire? It's not a bad desire, but like where is the source of that? So. What drives you to prioritize this kind of effort? Like maybe your roommate's a really great person and you want to impress them because you really care what they think about you. That could be a reason. Um, Maybe you don't have many friends and you want to make sure that they're your friend. It could be a lot of other reasons. But the problem with both those motives is they're about you, not the other person. So you're kind of using that person to get something for yourself so that you can feel good about yourself that they can like you, that they can like, you can have friends, it's, it's just kind of it dead ends with you. They're all tinged with selfishness, which is sinful, which is funny, because you're trying to love, but again, you find yourself at this horrible place where you're back in square one. Like, man, I thought I was elevating, but I'm just kind of doing it for myself. So we can't love God through executing a seven-step process. Striving is insufficient, you can't Ohio this one. Um, so again, even if we do these steps, these seven steps, we might do them for the wrong reasons, because God cares about the heart. The heart is really important. The heart is a place of transformation. He wants to give us a new one. Um, and if we do these things without like, this kind of heart transformation, we're kind of running on our own gas, if you will. It's a good way to think about it. Like, I'm gonna love God. I'm gonna do all the right things in college. It's kind of easy when you're surrounded by this community, but I promise you, when you graduate, and if you're still running on this fuel, it's not gonna sustain you, right? it's not gonna work. You're gonna graduate, you're not gonna have great people you're living with around all the time, you're not gonna have these small groups, you're not gonna have this kind of like thrust to your life and the tank's gonna run dry and you're like, man, where'd the tank go? I have no idea how to do this thing because I just kind of like wrote off momentum from others. Um, All right, so um, I can go on here but I wanna make one thing kind of absolutely clear in all this. If we are in control, God isn't. If we are in control, God is not. He's kind of a good parent. He's like, okay, if you got this, I'm going to let you got this. <laughs> right? He steps back. He doesn't want it. He's, not, he's never forces. So if we're in control, we are living the wrong story. Okay? We have the wrong main character. So our question, again, how do we love God? How do we fulfill the greatest commandment? How do we love God? Is it through action or surrender? Well, I think we kind of see it is both. But what's step one? Surren- step one is is surrender and John took us really well through this but the initial step has to be surrendered That's why the the entry point to the Christian life is what? Yeah, you guys said it say it say a Baptism yeah, the entry point of the Christian life is baptism. There you go, Bonnie crushing it um, The entry point of the Christian life is baptism in baptism. We are drowned John kind of said that and I think like, it's kind of a joke but I don't think I didn't really hear people laugh on the audio. I wasn't here in person. I thought it was pretty funny John's like, you want to join my club? Uh, yeah, cool, uh, you get to be drowned first. But that's what baptism is, it's a drown, it's like, because like, we don't really get this image with like, you know, sprinkling water on babies, but actually what it was was a immersion into waters which are chaos and death, you can't breathe underwater, and then you emerge, what do you do when, you, like, when you're shoved underwater and you come back out? <gasps> like you're breathing in, it's a new you. It's, it's like, it's a, what's that likened to? Like maybe the first breaths when you're born into this world from your mother, right? It's kind of like that. It, it's like it's not dissimilar. It's actually very much linked. It's that kind of like gasping new life, and like your your spiritual life has begun because you're death to the old self, death to the old man that needs control, death to the person that's like I got this, God, I know what I'm doing, and resurrection to a new way of being where God is the main character. It's not me. So baptism is this voluntary surrender right? And you can say, we can talk about this. It's a voluntary surrender of our control. We say, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. Jesus, and every Christian has to come to this point, or else their faith is incomplete. Like, who is Lord of your life? In baptism, we say, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. And all of you have an opportunity to do that, like, every single day in your life, and even more intensely in the season in college, you're asking these hard questions. But this is, brothers and sisters, the hinge moment of our life. Who is Lord of your life? Who is The captain now, right? Who's calling the shots? Um, Shout out Tom Hanks. Um, This is the moment that changes everything. Declaring Jesus Lord of your life. All right, let's try it out. Let's try it out. Okay. It's declare Jesus Lord of your life. Say Jesus Lord of my life. One, two, three. Jesus, the Lord of my life. Okay. Do you change? Do you change? Oh, dang it. Okay. Um, Did it work? I I don't know if it worked. So here's the thing. But even, like, saying that, Jesus is Lord of my life, you say it's like a surrender, a voluntary surrender, but it's still kind of an action, right? You're still declaring Jesus Lord. So we say it's surrender, but it's also an action. This is confusing. Um, Are we still controlling this? Is it still kind of us? I just control you guys by making you do that right now? Like, where's the surrender in all this? Um, And even says, Scripture, no one can declare Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So does that mean it's surrender? Um, There's mind games involved here. It's kind of confusing, right? It's like, okay, like where is surrender? Where is active participation? God, where, is it? where do you work here? So um, there's, there's a sacred um, happening in my house every Christmas um, that happens um, in my house. I should say the house I grew up in because it's no longer my house. But my dad um, would always have us sit down and watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Who is, has who is seen the Charlie Brown Christmas special? Man, it's good. You're good parents. It's classic. Um, if you haven't seen it, you guys don't know that Charles Schultz is one of the greatest philosophers in the 20th century. They're right up there with like C.S. Lewis and you know, Balthazar, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but there's a line in it, like at the end, when like, they Charlie Brown has to go find a Christmas tree for the Christmas play that's like not going so well, but he like goes out to find a tree sign up, he's like, okay we need a tree, tree's a sign of hope, stability, new life. Um, and he finds a tree, And it's a really dinky tree. Maybe you've seen it, if you haven't seen the movie, maybe you've seen this kind of like dinky Charlie Brown Christmas tree, right? And like Charlie Brown sees the tree and like puts a little ornament on it and it goes and it like falls over. And Charlie Brown in his exasperation goes, oh, everything I touch gets ruined. It's really sad. And he like walks away sad and everyone kind of makes fun of him too when they see the tree. Like, that's such a stupid tree. Why would you pick that one? Like, that's ridiculous. Charlie Brown, you screw up everything. Um, Like, he can't even do this right. And brothers and sisters, it's kind of like us. Like, everything I touch gets ruined when it's just me. When I try to control it, when I try to do it, when I try to make it happen, everything I touch just has this scent, this odor of me, of, like, my ways, my control, my plan. But then Linus comes in. Who knows, does anyone know what Linus says? Yeah, there we go. He goes, Linus goes, after Charlie Brown's gone, his friend goes, It never was such a bad tree. All it needed was a little love. And, brothers and sisters, that's what we're turning to divine love. Like, it never was such a bad son or daughter. All it needed was a little love. And what we're talking about here now is resurrection power, is the Holy Spirit right? We're in the spotlight, like Charlie Brown. Everything I touch gets ruined. It all has this kind of odor, this scent of me. That's just me and my ways. And what we need is love. We need power, capital L love. We need the Holy Spirit. So who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a person, right? Not just an abstract force. It's not like Star Wars. The Spirit is God's greatest gift. I'll say it again. The Spirit is God's greatest gift. Why? Because in giving us his spirit, God gives us himself. The spirit is God's greatest gift. Because in giving us the spirit, God gives us himself. The spirit is a mystery, though, right? It's not like we can study it, touch it, feel it, know it. Right? The son, Jesus, was like a physical person. And yes, he was God, but we could see the son. He, he spoke to us, right? The spirit is not seen and revealed in the same way. So Paul associates the spirit with the depths of God. Right? He says, the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Right? God is a word. Right? Therefore, it is fitting to speak about him right, in Jesus. But the spirit, um, God is also spirit. So therefore, it's fitting to just to be silent in front of him, right? to experience him that way. If I find myself in the spirit, in God, it is natural for words to be left behind. Who's been there before with God? Where words cannot... Satisfy, or even come close to what we're experiencing or knowing of what God's showing us. The spirit gives knowledge that is too wonderful for me, the psalmist says. It is high. I cannot attain it. We know that the Hebrew word for spirit is what? Who knows? Rua. In Greek, it's uh, pneuma. And in Latin, spiritus. All these words, yes, they mean spirit. They also mean wind and breath. Wind and breath. Jesus says, the wind blows where it wills, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. It's so like the Cotton Eye Joe verse. <laughs> the wind blows where it wills. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. We cannot c- catch the wind or control it, right? Like, we can, like, put up some wind, some wind turbines to kind of, like, give us some, like, utility in it, um, but we, you can't catch the wind you can't like harness the wind we say we harness the wind and we like put up wind turbines That's not, we're not harvesting the wind the wind is still doing its thing it's just moving our little big metal things in the air um, in the same way no one can catch the spirit no one can catch the spirit but to the one who wishes they can let themselves be caught no one can catch the spirit but to the one who wishes they can be caught so, so what are we doing here? We're kind of backing up. I think, and all this I'm talking about, we want to kind of take off our shoes. Not literally, but metaphorically. I mean, you can if you want, it's a prophetic action. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Um, but we're like, we're kind of getting some humility here. And we're seeing the vastness of God, of the spirit, of the gift of the spirit. We're seeking him. We're seeking how to fulfill the greatest commandment, how to love God, right? How to live properly this great story that we're plopped into, how to win the game, if you will. I mean, we know the main character is God, not us. Um, and so what did God do? God created, God saved, most, more specifically saved through his life, death, and resurrection. What is the point of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? It's actually, the point of Jesus coming to save us is Pentecost. I'll say again, the point of Jesus coming to save us is Pentecost. You guys know the story of Pentecost, right? When the Holy Spirit falls and, like, the church begins and, like, everything has changed. But the point of Jesus coming was Pentecost. Why do I know that? Jesus says it. Jesus says, it's better for you that I go. Why in the heck is it better that the second person in the Trinity leaves? Physically present. Like, that seems like a pretty good deal. Why? Because Jesus' whole plan was to send the Spirit. This is the plan. To send the Spirit. We, John said the highest voluntarily sought the lowest so that the lowest could be united to the highest. That is the story. That the highest voluntarily sought the lowest so that the lowest could be united to the highest. How is the lowest united to the highest in the spirit? There is no other way. It is the Holy Spirit that unites us. This is accomplished through the Holy Spirit dwelling with us, right? The entire thrust of God is that we will be filled with him, with his divine love. Right, His very spirit, his very life. This is the entire plan. This is how it goes. I came, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and how I wish it was already blazing. His heart, that John so eloquently talked about, his heart is burning that we would be filled with his spirit, the very spirit of God. So here's, here's the crux. Are we thirsty? Or are we hungry? Whichever one you prefer. I like thirst. Are you thirsty? This is the pivotal question presented to every single generation that has ever lived. Are you thirsty? Or are you doing okay? Are you satisfied? Is life going pretty good right now? And you're like, okay, I still need some sprinkle of God. I think I still got it. But are you thirsty? Are you ready to say, I know that I do not know? Like, I don't have it all figured out. God, I need you. I'm actually kind of, maybe you're doing the seven steps. We all kind of fall into it. It's all kind of our default. Maybe you're like, I'm kind of done with the seven steps. I'm actually ready for you to teach me how this thing goes, Lord. How does this go? How does the Christian life go? Um, to, say, to say that I know that I do not know, to say that I don't have it figured out is actually what you say at your baptism. Now, you were all babies, but there is, like, the chance for us to actually declare Jesus the Lord is predicated, is pre- like, it first comes with us admitting we don't have it all figured out, that I need you, that I'm thirsty, and I need you to help me figure this out. This is not working, right? I know that I do not know. This is the refrain of our lives. It's, and in the baptism, I die. Like the me that needs controlling, drown, the, me, the me that has to control is drowned so that Jesus may live in me. The spirit may live in me. All right. All right. So here's the here's sticky point. Um, we live in a fallen world. This is a little bit of recap. Okay. We live in a fallen world, right? Amen. Right. We're, on, we're on this side of right. The, uh, the veil or in this side of like eterni- or this side of eternity, right? It's your temple. We are incapable of reaching paradise on our own efforts. Hopefully you realize that. You are not climbing to the top of your little tower of Babel and figuring it all out on your own. You are incapable of reaching paradise. We cannot put Humpty Dumpty back together again. We can't be back in Eden and in paradise on our own efforts, no matter how hard you try. Enter Jesus. God became man, right, and dwelt among us. Why? All about Pentecost. All about so that the spirit of God would dwell in you. That that would change everything. That that would change your heart. Again, taking from you your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. That God's law would be written on your heart. This kind of living, breathing relationship with God. That you would love with his love. That you would see him with his love. The problem is here, we don't control the spirit. Again, it's not like a light switch. It's not like we just did earlier, like, Jesus, your Lord of my life. Oh, is it now? Did it happen? It doesn't really quite work like that because we don't control the spirit. No matter how hard we say or try, we do not control. God is God and we are not. He is infinitely beyond and above us. And even in the sacraments, we don't control God. He's given them as a gift, as a mediation, as a means of grace. But it's not us controlling God, it's us cooperating with God. It's something he has initiated that we participate in. So that's, if you're thinking that. So the burning question. Uh, we don't control the spirit, but how do we get filled? The point is to be filled, but we don't control the spirit. How do we get filled? Answer, we make room. We make room. So, here's the pattern. Give us a little, some, some kind of ideas, you can call them practicals. Um, this is the pattern, again with surrender and action, joined together in Christ. Step one is this this surrender of our control. It's realizing our powerlessness to make our way to God. There are no steps that you can manufacture, right, like of your striving and doing that get you there. The first step is realizing I can't make steps, which is ironic that I say that because I'm saying steps don't work, but this step works because you realize your powerlessness. And this might take one per time. It might take a little bit longer. You might God might just like I'll let you like kind of bang your head against the wall for a little bit to kind of show you like you don't got it. <laughs> and it's not like He's punishing you. He's just letting you do what you want to do, and He's letting reality teach you. He's letting just your choices, natural consequences, kind of happen. So right, um, we realize that we surrender our control. We sur- surrender our condition, our feeble grasping. This is all repentance, right? And then. Then what do we do? This is maybe more of an action. We make room. I propose to us. We make room. We clean out the rubbish. We get. We kind of clear out the stuff, and we'll get more in a second on that. And then we. Then step three. We wait for the fire to fall. So it's funny. It's like the action. The, the kind of grouping together. One and two are kind of this repentance. And step three is believe. Is exactly what the first thing Jesus says in Mark. Right? He says repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, right? The king of God's hand, repent, and believe in the gospel. So, um, all right, we're going to read 1 Kings 18. If you have your Bible, you can turn to it. You guys might recognize the story. It's Elijah and the prophets of Baal, or Baal, if you will. So, um, long story short, um, Ahab, is doing some bad things. As the king of Israel, he married Jezebel, who is bringing in her gods, her Baals, these, like, these other idols into Israel. And now Israel's kind of all taken by these idols, which they have to be kind of working a little bit or satisfying in a way or else like, people wouldn't follow it. So it's not like they're like just stupid. They just don't work ultimately. Right? But they have some gas in the gas tank, if you will. right? They get you somewhere, but not like eventually it runs out like all false worship does. But here we go. We're going to pick up the story. Um, Elijah throws down a gauntlet. It's pretty, pretty, um, pretty ballsy what he does here. So um, so Elijah came near to all the people, because Elijah tells Ahab to bring all the 450 prophets of Baal and all the people of Israel, gather them on Mount Carmel, see you there next week. So they show up. They're all there. There's like a throng of people, the 450 prophets of Baal, and there's just Elijah representing the one true God. Those are the odds. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Because they're kind of doing both, right? They're Israelites, so they still kind of like have like some worship of God, but they're still kind of like the double dipping, right? Dual life. How long will you keep going on limping with two different op- opinions? The People did not answer him with a word. Because they're kind of like, oh dang, that's a good question. Um, they're probably like, because I, I don't want to. Because is God real? Like they have all kinds of questions in that. Maybe even pray with that. Like, what are they, what are they hearing? What are they thinking when he asks that question? Then Elijah says to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. The Baal's prophets are 450 men. So he says, here's the, here's the deal. Here's the gauntlet. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, all the other prophets, and cut them into pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call on the name of your God. I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull. Okay, prepare it. Um, And then uh, they took the bull, which was given to them, and they prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal that morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar, which they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he has gone aside, or some say he is sleeping. He must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on it until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one heeded. Then it says, Elijah said to the people, come, he near to me. The people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. So he took 12 stones, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench, put two measures of seed. Uh, he put the wood in order and cut the bowl into pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, you know, and, he, and then he, and he was kind of bragging at this point. He gets some jars of water, and they pour it on the offering. And he says, do it a second time. And he says, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran about the altar and filled the trench also with water. And it says, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So, pretty good story, pretty wild story. Um, if you think about this, what is Baal? We, it's, it's hard for us to kind of conceptualize. We weren't there. We don't know exactly what these gods were, but they were like, they were, people were paying attention to them because like, they had something to offer. And if we can translate it to our modern setting, if we could be so bold, It would be something like the idea like, money is gonna give me a good life. Money will get me what I need, and then it's gonna work out for me. So therefore I need to get the right job um, and have the right career, and life's gonna go okay. That, brothers and sisters, is an idol because you're putting your trust that life will work out in money. Maybe it's like, you know, a good job will save me, which is related. But like A good job will give me meaning to my life, it will give me like fulfillment, and then the money, and then the security, and like my life will work out if I have the right job. A happy family will save me. Like my family, if I have them, and I love them, and they love each other, and we just have all these great memories and all these great times together, that's what's gonna give me a good life. Again, even though it's a good thing, that is an idol if you talk about it in that way. Why? Because you're saying the family is the vehicle for a good life. It's like the source of fulfillment of what I want. You guys, you guys track with me here? You see that? So comfort will be my salvation. Being liked by others will make me secure. Political takeover will be our victory. My fame will safeguard my significance. My grades, my competence, my mind will give me what I need. These things are nothing. They are air, right? They're not nothing, they're gifts of God, but when we place them as our source of hope, they crumble. They're made of wood, they're made of nothing. And that's maybe what Baal, we could say, is. And that's why people were following it. How many, like maybe even parts of our hearts are still following that, right? I know in my life there's still idols that I can kind of like sneakily creep back in. But even like we look on campus, with no judgment but just with observation, like a lot of people are kind of living life thinking like, hey, if I just do this thing right, if I marry the right person, if I get the right job, life's gonna work out for me. That's that's an idol. (laughs) That's not how it goes. So the altar that's erected to Baal should be taken as standing for all the ways in which we order the infinite longing of our hearts towards something less than God. So this altar to Baal, this worship of Baal, should be taken as the ways in which we order this infinite longing in our hearts for satisfaction, for love, for being known by God himself and being with him forever, the love that only can satisfy from him. Then we orient that to lesser things. We think that's the thing that's going to actually get me there. That's the thing that's going to do it. When we do this, the fire never falls because merely worldly things cannot, even in principle, satisfy our hungry souls. When we persist in worshiping falsely, we find ourselves in short order caught in an addictive pattern, right? Hopping obsessively, as it were, around the altar of pleasure, power, fame, desperately seeking a satisfaction that will never come. The futility of these these priests, these prophets of Baal, is like, we've seen that in our own lives. When we kind of hop around this one sort of obsession, thinking this will bring me satisfaction and happiness, and it doesn't. The fire does not fall. It does not come. The self-harm, even. Like, it's kind of weird, but it talks about, like, they, like, cut themselves, and, like, blood was everywhere. Like, what's up with that? I would never do that. That's ridiculous. Well, the self-harm inflicted by the the hapless priests, it speaks eloquently to the self-destructive quality to which any addict can attest. And if you've been in addiction before, which many of us have, not all, maybe it's different degrees in different areas, but addictions suck our life out of us, do they not? Like, or actually what's inside kind of comes outside in a way, you could say. Like our very lifeblood is sapped from us. And the crazy thing is we do it to ourselves. We cannot get free right? And that's the futility of these priests, of these prophets hopping around the altar, thinking that this addiction is a good thing, that we know won't help, that we just can't get away from it. So we just start cutting ourselves to try to make ourselves even more, right? Even even more seen or whatever it is. So only when the fondest desire of our soul is directed to the infinite God, will the firefall and addiction be conquered. So once again, the question is simple. Which altar are you worshiping at? Your whole life will unfold for we or for woe from that decision. So there's one image I want to kind of end with us leave us with today. And it's, it's, it's an image from the story. It's that of stacking up dry wood. So we said, we, we kind of said, how do we, wait, how do we like, make room for the Lord? How, how, do, how do we receive the Spirit? We make room. And I want to say, how do we receive the Spirit? We stack up wood for the sacrifice. We don't control the fire, but we can make an offering. We can make an altar, a proper altar that the fire can then come and consume which is actually our lives. So we can stack up wood on the altar of our hearts, brothers and sisters. We can stack up dry wood on our hearts, on the altar that is our hearts. So dry wood, I would propose, are these little choices we make to show God that we value him above our idols. Little choices, little opportunities we have. So here's an example. Being generous with our money without counting the cost. You guys are college students, but you do have money. Um, Like the why, Of being generous with our money, the why matters. Why we're generous. Why do we give? Well, we give because Jesus has given us everything. Right? He's given us everything. He has my back no matter what. And I can be generous with my money because I need him, not money, for life. It's not that we, like, throw away everything we have. That's a call for some people, like St. Francis and others to live in radical poverty, but I don't think everyone's necessarily called to do that right now. But God is calling us to actually show him with money, physical money, that he matters, not my money. These decisions stack up dry wood. Another, op- another um, decision we can stack up dry wood with, being generous with your time without counting the cost. Why are we generous with our time? Why do we prioritize prayer? Why do we prioritize being present with a brother or sister that needs us when we don't really necessarily maybe have the time, we think? or want to be there? Why do we make time for a friend who doesn't know the Lord? Why do we make time to go be on campus and meet people? Well, because Jesus has given us this incredible gift of time. It's all his. And it's completely free, so we offer it back to him, right? Trusting that he gives us a hundredfold in return, that he's going to make it happen. Like, these decisions are dry wood. We offer him another example, our future plans. These can be idols. We think, like, man, my future is going to be great because of all these great things given to me and my future is going to work out because of x y and z but we know that as far as the heavens are above the earth so are god's thoughts above our thoughts and his ways above our ways right so we offer him our future god maybe you know something i don't so i'm just going to offer this to you it doesn't mean you have to like just drop out of college i always say this but it's not exactly that's not what i'm talking about um that we can offer him our future here and now right we can offer him knowing that, God, you are my fulfillment in my future, not my control and not my plan that I maybe have right now that I'm maybe too closely tied to. Another example of how to stack up dry wood. Fasting. Could be food. Could be something different. Um, but why is this important? Because we hunger um, physically as a way to show that our souls are hungering for the living God. Right? Like God, when I'm hungry, I channel the hunger and say, God, I'm hungry, but my soul is so much more hungry for you. That is us stacking dry wood. Saying, God, let your spirit come, God fill me. Like food is good, right, but I'm giving up this good because you're better right now. You're better always, but I'm choosing to to feel this because you're better. These decisions stack up dry wood. We also offer them our little comforts, right? Time in our computer, endless sports articles, YouTube binge sessions, scrolling endlessly through a sea of nothing but trite dopamine hits, right? We can actually offer those to the Lord. Say, Lord, you're bigger than this right now. And this actually doesn't even help me. I, get, I leave this more anxious, so I'm going to give this up for a time to just say to my heart and to you, God, that you are better. That is stacking up dry wood, brothers and sisters. We offer our careers, maybe our fame, being known in life. We acknowledge that it profits a man nothing to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul. That all that matters to us in the end is to be filled with God's very life. That, brothers, this is is what we desire, to be filled with God, that the fire would come. So we realize our inability to reach God by our own efforts. We surrender our control. We call upon our baptism where we die with Christ, and then we start stacking up dry wood so that the spirit might be able to ignite us, might be able to have a raging fire in us, that we would be filled with God's very love, his very life. If we find ourselves in a spot where we feel like we're incapable of offering these things to God, it's like, man, I, I hear John, but I, I kind of, I'm kind of pissed. I don't like that. Um, just tell God about it. Say, God, I, I think I'm holding tightly to this. I think you're better, but just be honest and be real because you don't need to be fake. <laughs> that gets get you nowhere. Um, and then he will remind us of who he is, how he is a father who has our flourishing in mind, who has our fulfillment in mind, who wants greater things, our enhancement, our thriving. So this pattern of surrender that we're talking about, of this pattern of laying up this dry wood, is nothing other than the cross. All right, this is Bishop Barron. He says, if we want to live a happy life, we should love what Jesus loved on the cross and despise what he despised on the cross. What did he despise? but all those objects of false worship to which we tend to erect altars. Many of us worship wealth, but on the cross he was utterly poor, stripped naked. Many of us worship pleasure, but on the cross he was at the limit of suffering, both physical and psychological. Many of us worship power, but on the cross he was nailed in place, unable even to move. And many of us worship honor, but on that terrible cross he was object of scorn and ridicule. In short, the crucified Lord said no as radically as possible to the idols. But what did he love on the cross? He loved doing the will of his father. The cross itself functioned as the altar on which the sacrifice of his life to the father took place. And this is why the fire fell. This is why the Holy Spirit came. So when we are offering these little things to God, these little idols, we are participating in Jesus' act on the cross of saying, God, I'm offering you this thing because you're better. God, because, Father, you have the ways of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. Father, you are the one. And I'm just going to offer you this tiny thing and just say to you right now that you're better. And stacking up that dryer wood, and that's, by doing that, participate in Jesus, and Jesus' offering is what brought the Holy Spirit. Amen? Like that, Jesus. better that Jesus goes because the whole point of the crucifixion was Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. So let's direct our efforts to stacking up dry wood for the Father. Not because we have the illusion of saving ourselves. This is not a new seven-step plan. This is the surrender of that plan. Right? This is the offering of that plan, saying, God, I can't even help myself, but you can. That's stacking up dry wood. Right? God, I don't know how to pray as I ought, but you teach me. That's dry wood. We realize we can't do anything unless the fire falls, unless the Holy Spirit dwells in us more completely. So I'm speaking up here too today from a place where I'm actually in a similar spot in my own life, right? And this isn't like you graduate from this, like you're gonna do this in college and like you're filled the rest of your life. Like life is bumpy, but I think the Lord has a grace for this people, myself included, for us to actually receive the Spirit in a new way. Because I think life can get kind of boring, life can get kind of stale. Like, you need kind of like, all right, show up and do the thing. All right, another time to do morning prayer. All right, another prayer time. All right, here we go. I know it's important. I'm just going to show up and do it. The Father wants to inject his very life into those moments and change the whole game. A new heart. The heart of stone is heavy. The heart of stone is slow to move. The heart of flesh loves. It is love, and it knows love, because it is God's very love that has transformed it, that dwells in it, that lives there. So when we do this, to mix metaphors, we begin to make space. Right? We clean out the rubbish so that God can move in. Our hearts begin to yearn for the water in which we will never thirst again. The water that actually satisfies. When the Spirit shows up, we don't get tidier hearts, we get new hearts. Right? When the Spirit shows up, we don't get tidier hearts, we get new hearts. We begin to love God with His own love. Because the Spirit is God's love, right? So the Spirit dwells in us. God's love dwells in us, and God's love comes out of us. We live life with God's love. We love other people with God's love. We love God with His own love. It's all His love, anyways, and we're just offering it back to Him. There's a force, there's a thrust to it, there's a completion to the whole cycle to it. We can, so here's, here's kind of the, the to answer a question How do we love God? We can't, but He can through us. We cannot fulfill the greatest commandment. But he can through us, and that's what he wants to do. That's what he's about, and that's what we're talking about. Last thought. So going back to our story at Mount Carmel, like all the people were gathered, right? They're curious about whose God was the true God. They showed up because they were curious. So when we do what we're talking about, stacking this dry wood to let the fire fall, um, we're erecting altars of true worship. And when we say, God, you are bigger than these lesser things, God, you're bigger than these idols, we find that the fire falls and we're transformed, and the people on this campus notice there's something different. It's not just us living tidier lives. It's us living new lives, different lives. They just can't help but notice. Questions will come to us, right? And then we can witness and testify. When they encounter us as a body, right, they'll experience, like, this living flame in a way, like, it's not just like a campfire, but it's like a bonfire, right? Like, all these flames gather together, they will be, they'll experience something they never thought possible, That the living God actually has not abandoned us, but He's dwelling in this person, and I don't even understand how that's possible, but I'm in. I want it, because I'm freaking thirsty. Right? And the sad part is, most of us Christians, we can be so satiated at times, we can think we have it, we know it, but the people out there are more thirsty than us sometimes. It's the great tragedy of Jesus' life, talking to the Pharisees, banging his head against the wall, because they weren't thirsty. The Pharisees were the religious leaders and they were doing really well. They had the best seven steps. They actually did pretty good with the seven steps, but the seven steps fell short. And Jesus was ban- like, trying to get them to see, like, these tax collectors and sinners are thirstier than you and they're getting to the kingdom and you're not. Right? Like, do you see how this is all, like, backwards? Like, you're still in control. Surrender it. And we can have the spirit of the Pharisees, right? But we're in control. We think we can do it, but we can't. And tax collectors and sinners will get to the kingdom before we will because they're actually thirsty. So we admit our thirst. And when the fire falls... Um, We are filled with the Holy Spirit, and people notice. Mission explosion. The church becomes the church. Jesus is proclaimed as Lord through the witness of our lives and our testimony. And we live in the love of God and love of neighbor because it's God's very love working through us, because we're on fire with the very love of God. And when we're filled with God himself, when we're living from this place, um, we can start to fulfill, and and this this is Paul, he says, and there we find the law of spirit and grace sorry, the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. So this whole problem we talked about, the Charlie Brown problem, everything I touch gets ruined," is transformed, because we are transformed. We are different, and we're living with God's very life. And there we can love because we are filled with God Himself, with love himself and the spirit. So um, yeah, we're going to worship, because that's one thing you kind of do here. And if you're kind of in it, like, no matter where you're at right now, um, the thing this talk is not about is about figuring out your crap. It's about surrendering your crap. So that's the first thing we're going to do is as we kind of into worship, um, even maybe before the first song, I'm going to do, like, the thing where I have, like, the mic up here. And we're just going to have people come up and just surrender idols. And if that's an idol you have in your life, just out loud be like, yes, God, I surrender that one, too, because that one's real. And then we're gonna make space and then we're gonna worship the living God. Sound good? All right, let's get chairs out of the way.